Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're going to be talking about anxiety. I guess a good place to start would be to define anxiety and trace what anxiety means. So I kind of think there's a difference between anxiety that's just like an individual psychological condition, which is very real, and anxiety is like a, a widespread problem. Like a social phenomenon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that we are in any position really to talk about anxiety as a medical diagnosis. I'm much more interested in thinking about how anxiety sort of manifests beyond the psychological state and becomes not just like an embodied sensation, like how you, how your body feels because you're anxious, but also a way of understanding how bodies together inhabit different kinds of political spaces or imaginaries. So for me, when I think about anxiety, it's not just like, oh, I'm worried about things or I'm anxious about an outcome because I I have uncertainty. For me, anxiety describes a much more pervasive series of stimulus response patterns, you know, that change how my body feels and how my brain thinks. What do you think about that, Laura? I think that anxiety is kind of a pervasive problem for most people. It's just like a constant white noise that people have in their lives, kind of like architecture that uh, shapes the way that people think about themselves and their environment. I think anxiety has um, a lot to do with just like being in the world at all. Like it's just a natural condition of being alive, just being mortal and knowing that you're going to die or being moral in like a universe that's kind of not just kind of incredibly unpredictable and knowing that you don't have any agency really. (laughs) Um, But then of course that like natural anxiety is exacerbated by a difficult world that we've created. Uh, What kind of things do you think produce anxiety? Uh, Well, I mean, I think anxiety in this context, this culture, I think anxiety in this culture is relentless, relentless pace of meetings and phone calls and checklists and, you know, things that need to be handled now or later and obligations and relationships to manage and, you know, things to read and keep up with. I mean, I feel like, um, whenever there are social and technological shifts where people feel like they're, they have to move faster then the anxiety mounts and multiplies in ways that are, um, difficult to manage. And I think that they manifest in the body in ways that change how people's brain chemistry works and how they feel. They get more tense, their body posture changes they eat differently. You know, I mean, there are all of these, these consequences of anxiety that are actually, I think, changing how we respond to stressful stimulus. Yeah. 
I think there's a lot of evidence that anxiety and stress have deleterious effects on health. Yeah. And on, I know, uh, school performance, like when you time tests Mm -hmm. and like remind students of the time limit, their performance drops significantly. I mean, when I look around at people who are my age, who are in their mid thirties and who no matter what they're doing, right, whether they're professionals or they're working class or they're working poor or they're unemployed, it doesn't matter sort of what strata you're from. The only thing that, that, that mat, like the only real variable that's different is that people who have more money have more resources to help manage the effects of their anxiety on their bodies than on others. That's it. I mean, everybody else is feeling tremendous stress and strain about the way that the culture is built around you know, certain kinds of expectations about what kind of person you are, what kind of life trajectory you're going to have. And for me, I think that one of the problems with that is just that the American perspective is so linear. So it's like, first you go to school and then you try to get into college and then you try and get a job and that, you know, you're going to have a career path and you're going to climb the social ladder. While you're doing that, you're going to meet somebody and get married and have kids. And it's all just super linear and there's not a lot of room for deviation. And that, I think, creates a lot of anxiety because very early on, as kids are asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? They feel, And I see this all the time at, on campus. You know, kids feel boxed into narratives that they articulated when they were kids before they had a bunch of data. And so there's anxiety about doing what they've said they wanted to do, and there's anxiety about not doing it. And it's sort of a catch-22 where there's no... Nobody's a winner <laughs> because nobody's really doing... They're not trying new things and they're not they're risk averse you know and they're terrified of failure and so they get wound up in these mundane decisions that happen all day throughout the course of every single day instead of focusing on sort of what they themselves as individuals want and how they can use their skills in order to build a better community or something it seems to me like a symptom of the way that people are raised you know like edges of corners have to be well padded and you know yeah, totally. like you can't let your kids play outside without uh, parental supervision that's bad parenting parents are called out for introducing like any kind of danger or like unpredictability yeah, into their totally uh, kids life and then you know, so they're not exposed to any risk from a really young age and also, it's like everything is standardized mm-hmm. and quantified. So, like, everything looks the same and, um, I don't know, it just makes it more difficult to be different. Like, there's only one right answer. Yeah, it's <laughs> like there's no relief from the relentless pressures of a mythical normal, you know? I tell my students all the time, like, normal's a lie. <laughs> there is no normal. That's not, like, a thing. You know, you can keep running on the hamster wheel, <laughs> but normal, that's not a thing. But I feel like achievement, the achievement culture is really out of whack, especially given how, how, how I don't know, devastating the rollback of resources has been, especially since the Bush administration for public services from public education to welfare programs. I mean, to still have this sense of high achievement 
without providing the services to enable that achievement seems to me to be particularly cruel. Cruel on the micro level of the in, in people, like kids who don't have resources, who don't have you know, money for school breakfast programs and don't have libraries and don't have after school programs, don't have recess, don't have art, don't have music. You know, that at the micro level is tragic. But at the macro level, as you zoom out to think about how the culture keeps to wa- keeps wanting to emphasize this overachievement and the American dream, despite not having any of the tools intact to help people achieve those, it's no wonder that the millennial generation is has different attitudes about work and leisure and family and mm-hmm. you know higher education and a bunch of, of of other metrics because they have a different relationship to this culture of precarity and scarcity and terror and fear and and anxiety yeah and I mean, even for kids who do have the resources, um, you know, provided by their parents, uh, anxiety levels are are extremely high. All you need like, to do is talk to a teacher. I mean, most, <laughs> these college students right now, they have helicopter parents that don't want them to fail. They um, have unprecedented amenities on campus to help make their time comfortable. And they can't read an assignment. And they can't turn in a paper. I mean, they are literally incapable of turning, you know, what is often intellectually stimulating work into pleasure. Can't do it. They cannot do it. They don't have, they don't have any of the emotional tools to handle it when they fail. And so you have massively increasing rates of people outside of the student body, but in the, in the population at large, being diagnosed with medical conditions around anxiety and depression. And it's not just that they're, the diagnosing tools are more sophisticated or the population has grown. It's that the culture has changed. And I don't even know that all of that de- depression and anxiety is problematic. There are terrible things happening in America. The gun violence is outrageous. The poverty is outrageous. The food insecurity is outrageous. There's no living wage. You know, intellect, the anti-intellectual climate is demoralizing. You know, I mean, there are so many factors that make anxiety and depression to me seem completely reasonable responses to a totally unreasonable political climate. So for me, thinking about anxiety and depression, I mean, it's, it's important to think about those as feelings that individuals experience. And that, that's real as you said it when we opened, but it's as important, if not more so, in thinking about how they are public and political feelings that drive people towards individualism or towards collective action. And for me, I think that's that's where things are interesting. And I say that as a communication scholar, because I'm also interested in how individuals experience, you know, sort of the anxiety and how that translates into different kinds of embodied response, whether that's awkwardness or whether that's violence, violence, uh-huh, or introversion or shyness, you know, some of those things are part of your personality and some of them are adaptive tools, you know, or they are predictable responses to what feels often like a chaotic social climate. It seems obvious to me that like anxiety can cause people to be distant and like 
separate themselves. I feel like people are uncomfortable talking. I mean, there's that fear of intimacy that we've talked about before. And there's like an avoidance of intimacy because that's connected with like the fear of failure and, and the fear of rejection, the fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I feel like we conflate anxiety and awkwardness a lot mm -hmm. and people can't allow awkwardness to like be a, a moment of joy or like pleasure. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like things that can be awkward and it's, but it's like people can't see the charm in awkwardness, mm -hmm. which is just like such a bummer to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I have a, a really close friend who was talking last week. We were in Vegas, actually. And he was talking about public performances and what happens when somebody is performing publicly and they hit a flat note. He was using music, you know, as the metaphor. And um, I thought that was really interesting in thinking about interpersonal flat notes. Um because I feel like I hit them all the time. You know, I bust a joke or a punchline or a pointed observation. But for me, then I want to occupy that space fully and learn from it and turn it into something that is that helps us grow rather than just like collapsing in on myself and, mm -hmm. you know, hiding my face from the sun as like an ultimate rejection. I think too often we are not teaching and we're not willing to be taught how to revel in the weird. Yeah. There are times that like minor failures can be like successes. Yes. Actually, when like little failures happen, we make it destructive rather than a moment of growth or it's masochistic. You know, it's like it's it, it sort of um imbues these moments of awkwardness with much more significance than they they have any right to to be held to you know there's just no good reason to imbue those moments of awkwardness with such devastating personal self-loathing <laughs> there's just no good reason but it's like people have lost the ability to let go and i think that that's because the anxiety of being alive right now and doing the right things and getting the right job and making the money and getting the house and, you know, the middle, especially the middle class anxiety is so complete. And for poor people, you know, it's 10,000 times worse because then it's getting a job at all and getting out of violent situations and crawling out and, you know, scrambling out of poverty and food insecurity and education and all, all of this violence and all the things and it's constant. It's 24-7. And that that kind of anxiety enacts a different, though no less significant, toll on bodies. It shapes them. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said about how anxiety shapes the internal resources that a person can call on at their, at their disposal. And it also shapes the culture in which they can enact those resources. And those are different based on class and geography and race and gender and sexuality and, you know, able-bodiedness and those sorts of things. But, but, it's, uh, but it's pervasive. And I feel like for people who medically suffer from anxiety, I think about it in terms of the word disease, which is a dis 
ease, a lack of ease, a lack of easiness, an inability to feel easy in the culture. That's what disease means. And I think, especially in the context of anxiety, that there is a real a troubling, um, I don't know, a troubling tendency for people to no longer have resources at their disposal where they can feel easy. And that's structural, it's governmental, it's the lack of resources for social services. And it's, and it's, a, it's also an orientation towards what it means to be American, I think, you know? And so, you know, when I think about anxiety, I, I want to ask, like, how can we turn our anxiety, our personal anxiety, and our political anxiety into something positive? How can it be productive? How can it be productive space? How can we use anxiety as a resource that enables a different and new response to ways of being in the world that no longer drive us forward, you mm-hmm. know? Because we're not asking that enough. Because there, there are whole ways of being collective that no longer feel good. Yeah, I feel or like... work or are effect- effective. It's too easy to, you know, like you said earlier, uh, crumple in on yourself and, like, sit in your negative feelings and, like, uh, no one's really interrogating the reasons for their anxiety. What the hell can they? The entire culture makes them feel terrible about themselves. It's like political gaslighting. The culture makes everybody feel terrible about, the, about themselves. It doesn't matter if they're the oppressor or the oppressed. Everybody feels like shit. And the culture says, you are shit. You need self-help. If only you did this, if only you had this, if only you read this book, if only you prayed this much more, then you would be perfect. And so everybody's told all the time how shit they are and then consequently also told that they just don't believe in themselves enough. And if they only believed in themselves, then they would achieve. I mean, that is like the grossest, most traumatic gaslighting. And it's happening to everybody in the entire culture. I mean, that's lean in, right? That is lean in. If only you did, if only you read Cheryl's book (laughs) and you applied it to your life, even though it resembles nothing like hers as a billionaire, then you would have, you would, you would level up and unlock the achievements and somehow, you know, you would rise to the top of your field or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's a it's lunacy. And then that doesn't happen to people. So they buy into the self-help culture, this sort of therapeutic consumerism. And then it doesn't work for them. And then what happens? Then it really must be their fault. And then you have, you know, sort of chronic political depression. That seems wholly unnecessary to me. So I think even, even among my friends, when we talk about anxiety and depression, I'm really reluctant to medicalize it and anesthetize, especially after the Prozac revolution in the eighties. I'm extremely skeptical about how we talk about the medicalization of anxiety and depression, because I'm like, look around you, (laughs) look at all the horrible things that are happening that are, some of which are totally beyond your control. That would seem to be a reason you would, you would Mm -hmm. want to respond to that with sadness and hostility and, you know, resentment and a whole bunch of other unhappy feelings. And the culture drives those unhappy feelings and then will not give spaces where you can actually express them. 
So, you know, in my research, I write a lot about uh, negative feelings and how important they are in political movements, because it's the negative feelings, I think, that drive innovation and how we relate to one another. And there is always some destructiveness that happens as there are any kinds of cultural shifts. But I don't see all of those political, those impulses to destroy politics or political structures as all negative, even though the emotions that they come from are. So rage and grief and um, and resentment and distrust. Uh, I think that there are a lot of negative emotions that can be turned into productive you know, outlets. And I think anxiety is a similar sort of thing. I think we can think critically about how anxiety can push us, but there's a tipping point, just like any other emotion where then the anxiety becomes crippling and you can't get past it. Mm -hmm. So there's a sweet spot and, you know, an optimal zone, I think where anxiety can be harnessed and you're seeing it right now. Like, right. We're recording this right now after this massive mass shooting in San Bernardino, right? And so we've had a mass shooting almost every single day for the whole year. And there's a huge conversation right now about gun control. And I think we're going to see a tipping point there because people's anxieties are so high about the ridiculousness and of the of this, you know, mass shooting phenomenon that that anxiety is propelling people to think differently about how to message gun violence. I think feminism also did a pretty good job of handling negative feelings yeah, and like amplifying that. depression and the voices of uh, different people with different um, Sure. Betty Friedan's The Problem That Has No Name mm-hmm. is all about naming negative feelings. Absolutely. Yeah. Feminism did a good job of that and... But that's always been, like, in the background of, like, the consciousness-raising circles and talking about your sadness, talking about your anxieties, bringing that up with other women, connecting you to other women, other humans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, black culture, too. You can't think about black culture and not think about the blues or hip-hop or jazz or other kinds of expression of negative feelings. Or in queer culture, I think about camp. I mean, queer culture has done wonders in thinking through, you know, the negative feelings and the perverse and the playful in a a space that is transformative. So I think you can look at social movements as, as places where you can find just tremendous examples of using those kinds of quote unquote negative feelings for productive ends, transformative socially relevant, collectivist, and I would say political ends. But the, the trick is how, how to, to harness the anxiety. And part of it is that, you know, I was t- telling somebody yesterday, it's like it, there can be no ethical consumption under capitalism. And, I'm, and I sort of want to say if, you're, if your problem is anxiety and you've been diagnosed and you're, the, the underlying cause of that is capitalism, it's not you know, your individual life experiences. It's an entire system that's built on grinding people down to the smallest bits so that a very small number can own their entire life. And convincing them that it's bringing them up. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a ton of uplift rhetoric that goes along with the destruction of an ethical center, but, you know. But that's part of it, though. Yeah. The narrative is that 
capitalism is supposed to increase the general well-being mm -hmm. of everyone. And the fact that anxieties are kind of kept in the closet as something like personal or medical and not as a result of mm -hmm. uh, the, the fact that capitalism, I guess, <laughs> actually, yeah. But it helps it perpetuate, you know? I mean, I feel yeah. like not talking about anxiety is making it worse. I just sort of want to screen some t-shirts that say, has capitalism got you down? <laughs> yeah, and just sort of wear them around town as conversation starters. Because I really feel like, you know, capitalism is what influences the structure of your family. And capitalism is what buttresses social violence. And capitalism is what enables poverty. And, you know, any of the other things that, you know, a therapist might trace back to your individual experience. Like the, the more you go deep down the rabbit hole of your individual experience with the feeling that is commonly described as anxiety... Mm -hmm the less perspective you get on how it's a cultivated, carefully cultivated social phenomenon that's a result of, you know, structures that are, that where anxiety is the intended outcome. It's not a byproduct. It's not a side effect. It's an effect. It's a predictable outcome of certain policies and decisions. And in that way, if you think about anxiety or depression as political structures, then you can see how everybody is subjected to them, you know, more or less constantly, but in different ways. And that makes it easier to see how that can be something that people can talk about at, and through as a, as a collective sort of resistance to the culture of violence that capitalism. But I mean, I think anxiety isn't just about capitalism because I think it exists like no matter what as a condition of being I don't know. I know, human. but I don't know that I agree. I that. mean, that doesn't absolve capitalism from the um, massive amount of pain that it's caused but yeah i might differ with you there but i think it's just like a natural condition of being human and like realizing that you know we're just like bleeding shitting <laughs> animals animals that like are no more permanent than a cucumber. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have anxiety about that, so it's hard for me to... And I also am really, you know, skeptical of the naturalized kind of arguments, philosophical arguments, that naturalized feelings is just a, as, a, as a universal, predictable condition of being human. It's, there's no doubt in my mind that anxiety and depression have been permanent features of humanity. But whether or not they're naturalized... But I think I that know. anxiety has driven, like, I mean, it's created, I mean, like, just the f desire to control your environment and, like, know about it and understand it has driven, you know, people to, I mean, first build Stonehenge, you know, the anxiety of, like, understanding the sky and what was in it and the passage of time. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't know. There's this sort of term of a psychological term of art called the fear cage, you know, where there's like the uh, biofeedback loop is entirely negative all the time. And so you get stuck in this fear cage and, you know, you can't leave it becomes immobilizing. I think capitalism does that for a lot of people. 
but I don't think that there's any, I don't think that there's any intrinsic reason to feel anxious about mortality. And I don't think that there's any reason to feel anxious just because we're, I don't know, human. But I do think that, that it's clear that anxiety and depression are, are feelings that cross lots of temporal boundaries. I just think that for me, the most important part of thinking through anxiety and depression right now, especially in the context of lean in, is its relationship to capital. I mean, I think about it because I write about political depressives or people who feel like there are no positive feelings that can be associated with politics, people who don't see any avenues for hope or optimism or or anything out of the out of the contemporary political landscape. And so for political depressives, I think, you know, capital is what's structuring how politics functions right now. And it's the thing that we have to it's the elephant in the room. I mean that you know, sort of ironically, it's literally the elephant, but you know, it's also the failures of liberalism. So I don't know when I think about I mean I think that that's what obsessed me so much about lean in as a cultural touchstone is that it's, it just seems so cruel to tell people to lean in closer to capitalism when it's exactly capitalism that is exacerbating whatever low-level anxiety that they might exist just by being human in, a, in the modern world. And it's, and it's exacerbating it not by a factor of one or two, but exponentially and every single moment. And so there's just no respite from it for a lot of people. I think that's why you see you know, especially among white hipsters, sort of these calls to slow down, right? And the Buddhists obviously have this with the renunciation of material goods. They're like, you can't possibly feel good carrying all that crap around. I think you and I were also talking about house size and how house size has increased like 300% since the 1950s and how most of that space is accounted for in storage. So people are literally spending more money to have to have more square footage to store shit that they don't need. And they're just accumulating all of that clutter. And so I think I think that there's a relationship between stuff and consumption and material culture and culture of achievement and, you know, the bullshit of the American dream and self-help, you know, culture and the gospel, capitalist gospel, uh, all of those things, I think, intertwine to mask what is, I think, the largest problem, which is the unequal distribution of wealth and power. It makes sense that accumulating things, like having property, alleviates anxiety. It doesn't, but it makes sense that you would think that. Or Especially that if you don't have def- it. Yeah. I mean, it's some semblance of stability and an otherwise kind of chaotic environment I think leaning back though can also cause anxiety you know when you decide to eject and fight back oh yeah I agree with that wholeheartedly but but I think that that it's not necessarily anxiety producing I think here especially in the lean back space I talk a lot about skills and this is not a culture that, that values training people in civic participation any longer. And, of course, we can make an argument that it never really did. But, I mean, if people were trained to be good citizens, then they would have tools at their disposal that would absolutely minimize their anxiety. Because they would have the tools to participate in the discourse in a way that would feel more productive. 
They would be able to manage the information. They would be able to make the arguments. They would have access to the tools. They would have more political agency to assert in their communities. And that would decrease the amount of uncertainty. So I don't think that there's, there is, I don't think it's necessary that people feel that way. It's entirely dependent upon what kind of skills they have. But I think it's, but what I think is so problematic is telling folks who are not white and middle class and upwardly mobile and in these professional jobs that leaning in is somehow not dangerous. That's like 10,000 times more dangerous than people who are, who push back at work in some ways, you know, like, Hey, disregard your own personal ethics. Hey, ignore the anxiety and de depression and negative feelings that you feel are consuming you and work harder and stay later and you know, destroy yourself for the possibility of a promotion that may never come. I mean, I guess that's how you weigh risk. You know, and to me, it's the anxiety of leaning back that's enabling me to be much more productive as a citizen and as a scholar and as a parent and as a friend. There, that's a much more promising political space for me than leaning in is. And that's the part I think that a lot of people can't see. They see the false promise of leaning in as this like sentimental attachment to corporate achievement that doesn't usually pan out. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.